0: For our lesson of the day, I will pick up in Proverbs 8, where Dave left off. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I have been established from everlasting, from the beginning, before there was ever an earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth or the fields or the primal dust of the world, when he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters would not transgress his command, When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master craftsman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in in his inhabited world. And my delight was with the sons of men. Now, therefore, listen to me, my children, for blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not disdain it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, watching at the posts of my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me love death. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we pray that today we might learn to more and more cherish and prize and value wisdom. That we might value wisdom above all earthly riches and earthly comforts and earthly luxuries. That we might prize wisdom because wisdom is your son, your only begotten son, your eternally begotten son. He is the one crying aloud to us today to listen He is the one in whom we find joy and life. May we find joy and life in Him today. We pray this in His name. Amen. Last week we saw that Proverbs presents wisdom as the art or skill of living a beautiful life. Wisdom is living in accord with God's design. Last week we also saw something of the relationship of law and wisdom. So law is for children. Wisdom is for the mature. Law is for priests. It was for the priestly phase of Israel's history. It's for the priestly Phase of life. We saw last week how God put Israel's priests under the law. And so if you, if you were a priest in ancient Israel, every decision was made for you. Your, your life was mapped out by the law. There were really no big decisions for you to make on your own. Wisdom, by contrast, is for kings. It was given in the kingly phase of Israel's history. It's for the kingly phase of And so we saw last week that when God raised up a monarchy in Israel, kings like David and Solomon, he gave them wisdom for ruling well. For kings, certainly they must abide by the law, but kings face questions that the law doesn't answer. And that's why wisdom is necessary. What I want you to begin to see today is that Jesus is not only a priest, who has fulfilled the law for us he's also a king who embodies wisdom for us indeed as the only begotten of the father he is the source of all wisdom he possesses all wisdom he is wisdom he has infinite expertise in everything he's the son In Proverbs, who feared his father completely, who followed all of his father's instructions, who walked in the way of wisdom at every step in his life, Jesus is Proverbs in the flesh. Jesus is Proverbs with skin. All the Proverbs are fulfilled in him, which means wisdom is not just a what, it's a who. Wisdom is not just principles, it's a person. Jesus is the wisdom of God. To seek wisdom is to seek him. To find wisdom is to find him. Indeed, we could say Jesus is Yahweh, and the fear of Yahweh, the fear of the Lord, is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus is the one we must fear in order to have wisdom. To know wisdom is to know Jesus because all wisdom is contained in him. If we acknowledge him and follow him as our Lord, we will become more and more wise. If we follow the world's idols, the counterfeit lords, the counterfeit gods, we will become more and more foolish. Jesus is the royal embodiment of wisdom. And so we become wise by imitating him, by conforming the pattern of our lives to his. So that raises the age-old question, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do in this or that situation? If Jesus is wisdom and he possesses all wisdom and demonstrates and displays all wisdom, what would Jesus do in any given situation? That's what we want to know. Well, to answer that question, Proverbs is a great place to look. Oh, sure, we get glimpses of how Jesus lived in the Gospels, But the Gospels leave out a lot of details. Proverbs fills in those gaps. It shows us how Jesus lived as the human embodiment of divine wisdom. And because Proverbs applies heavenly wisdom to such a wide range of earthly situations, it shows us what that divine wisdom looks like in human form. What that divine wisdom looks like when it takes human shape. Jesus embodies the wisdom of Proverbs. We can look to the Gospels to see how Jesus lived, but we can also look to the book of Proverbs itself. See, Jesus' righteousness is proverbial. It is a proverbial righteousness. His righteousness is found not only in his law-keeping, but in his wise living. That means we can't do with the book of Proverbs what so many do. We can never reduce the book of Proverbs to mere moral tidbits, little moralisms to live by. It's not just ancient advice we find in the book of Proverbs. It is a revelation of the mind of Christ. To know the book of Proverbs is to know the mind of Christ. Wisdom in Proverbs is not just a collection of insights that anyone could figure out if only they would pay attention to the nature of things in the world around us. No, Proverbs shows us a wisdom that comes from fearing Christ as Lord, a wisdom that can only be found in knowing Christ himself. If you want to know what perfect wisdom looks like, look at Jesus. He is the sage of sages. He is the wisest of the wise. He is divine wisdom made flesh. And through his cross and through the outpouring of his spirit, he now shares his wisdom with us. And so what we need to see is that becoming wise is really becoming like Christ. Growing in wisdom means growing in Christ-likeness. For us, wisdom, we can say, is not just the art of living well and living a beautiful life, as we saw last week. Really, we can say, wisdom is living like Christ. It is the Christ-empowered skill of living like Christ himself. Jesus is God's wisdom and in him god gives us the grace of wisdom as well and that's why proverbs is such a crucial book for christians it's such a thoroughly gospel centered book because it's a revelation of christ to us Now, certainly we don't see the fullness of Christ's wisdom in the book of Proverbs. We don't see the fullness of his wisdom until you get to the New Testament scriptures as they bear witness to the incarnation of the Son of God in human flesh and his cross. But already in this Old Testament book of Proverbs, there are hints of what is coming. There is a foreshadow of what God will do when wisdom becomes human, when wisdom becomes human. Incarnate. I think it's very interesting to notice, I can't spell all this out for you this morning, but it's interesting to note as you move through the first several chapters of the book of Proverbs, you find that wisdom increasingly takes on a divine aura the very beginning of the book of Proverbs, it looks like wisdom is a human attribute. It should be a human characteristic, and so we're called to pursue wisdom. But you move a little further into the book of Proverbs, and you find that wisdom doesn't just come from your parents. Wisdom is actually an attribute of God, and it's a gift of God. All wisdom must come from God. There's something divine about wisdom. But then you go even further into the book of Proverbs and you find wisdom being more and more personified and more and more identified with God himself until finally we find wisdom doing things that only God can do. And that really culminates with this wisdom poem in Proverbs chapter 8. Now, of course, the New Testament takes that even further in places like 1 Corinthians 1 where Paul calls Christ Wisdom from God, he calls Christ the wisdom of God, because he's God's son, he is the embodiment of God's wisdom, and especially in his cross. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 and Colossians 2, we read this morning, Paul says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. Why? Because in him the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. He's God in a human body, and so he contains in himself all divine wisdom. Jesus is a treasure chest of wisdom. Or you see this in passages like Matthew 12, where Jesus himself says, one greater than Solomon is here. In other words, Solomon had the fullness of human wisdom. He went about as far as a mere human could go down the path Of wisdom, but Jesus embodies divine wisdom, a greater wisdom than that of Solomon. You've got all these passages in the New Testament that connect Jesus with wisdom. The Old Testament counterpart to those passages, the Old Testament roots for those passages in the New Testament are found here in Proverbs 8. Here in Proverbs 8, it's very interesting. Wisdom is both distinguished from God, but also identified with God. Wisdom is one with God, and yet somehow distinct from God. This whole chapter, Proverbs 8, is a poem about wisdom, written by wisdom herself. Wisdom is speaking here. This is wisdom's self-description. Interestingly, if you break it down, it's actually seven miniature speeches by wisdom in this chapter, which is fitting because it especially focuses on wisdom's role in God's work of creation, which took place over the course of a week, seven days in Genesis 1 and 2. It's seven speeches here reflecting that. Wisdom is speaking here, but wisdom's words are best understood as the words of Christ himself. And indeed, this is how the church has always understood this passage, going back, I think, to the Apostle Paul and other apostles who in various ways allude to this passage when they're talking about Christ. And you can draw all kinds of lines from this passage to various New Testament texts where you can see they're using the language of Proverbs 8 to talk about Jesus. But certainly the church fathers, those who came after the apostles, connected this passage with Jesus Christ. As well, they applied this passage to Jesus. They, too, detected echoes of this passage in the New Testament's descriptions of who Jesus is. I want to pick up in chapter 8, verse 22, where I started reading. Not because the first 21 verses aren't super important, they are. They've got all kinds of insights into wisdom as well. But I especially want to focus on the second half of this point. I pick up in verse 22 because this is one of the most controversial verses in the whole Bible over the course of church history. One of the most controversial verses in the history of the church. It's actually, as we're going to see, uh, an issue a controversy that's easily resolved uh, because it's due to a translation issue. But I want you to know something about this to see how the early church wrestled with this. The early church predominantly used a version of the Bible, a translation of the Bible known as the Septuagint. It was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. The early church used it because not very many in the early church, in those first several centuries after the apostles, not very many Christians knew Hebrew. And so they relied on this Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And in the Septuagint version of Proverbs 8.22, wisdom says this, The Lord created me at the beginning of his way. The Lord created me at the beginning of his way. Now, everyone in the early church agreed that wisdom in Proverbs 8 is Jesus. There were just too many New Testament allusions back to Proverbs 8 to deny that. But if that's the case, this verse, as they knew it, posed a problem. Wisdom here speaks of being created by God. And if this is a description of Jesus, does that mean that Jesus is not really fully God? but the greatest of God's creatures, perhaps. Maybe the oldest of God's creatures, the first of God's creatures, but still a creature on the creature side of the creator, creature divine. That's what Arius argued in the fourth century. Uh, Arius said Jesus is the greatest of God's creatures. He's very, very similar to God. He's very much like God in all kinds of ways, but he's still less than fully god And the chief proof text that Arius used to defend his view was this one here, Proverbs 8.22. He argued that Jesus could not be an eternal son of God, but rather must be a creature, because in Proverbs 8.22, wisdom says, I was created, the Lord created me at the beginning of his way. Now, the church fathers, those who were orthodox in their view of Jesus, who insisted that Jesus is fully God and begotten of his Father eternally and sharing the same divine nature as his Father, they had a real problem. They they said, yes, Jesus did become a man and enter into history as a creature at a certain point in history. But it was the divine and eternal Son of God who became incarnate, not merely a great So his human nature has a beginning, yes, but not his divine nature. He's existed as God's son from all eternity. And and the church fathers, in articulating this, said, look, the whole Old Testament is about Jesus, and so that must include Proverbs 8. So there must be a solution to this, but figuring out the solution proved to be quite a challenge. There was a huge controversy, and Arius was very persuasive. In fact, the way one historian described the situation, he said, the cry, from Proverbs 8.22, the cry, the Lord made me, resounded through city streets in Alexandria and in every other city where Arius had influence. The Council of Nicaea was called in 325 A.D. to settle the issue. Arius showed up to defend his case. Uh, The Orthodox Church Fathers showed up there to defend the deity of Jesus. Orthodox Fathers like St. Nicholas, the Bishop of Myra. Yes, that St. Nicholas, who uh, as a bishop wore red vestments and who was known for helping the poor and who had anonymously provided dowries for impoverished young girls by putting gold in their stockings so they'd be able to get married. That St. Nicholas that we've come to know as Santa Claus. When Arius got up to make his speech at Nicaea, the Council of Nicaea, Nicholas, upon hearing this speech and hearing Arius say that Jesus could not be fully God but was merely a creature, Nicholas decided he'd had enough. And so he walked up to Arius in the middle of his speech and just punched him in the face. Now, that's not necessarily the best way to resolve a theological debate and Nicholas was uh, disciplined for his actions but in the end the council at Nicaea ended up agreeing with Nicholas against Arius the deity of Christ was vindicated the church affirmed Christ is divine and they even pointed to other passages in Proverbs 8 which speaks of of wisdom being not a creature but from everlasting everlasting And said, well, look, even here in this very passage. But Proverbs 8.22 was a real difficulty. It was a real sticking point. And some of the church fathers came up with pretty ingenious explanations of the verse. Some said that the Greek term there must also be able to mean begotten. In fact, later in this passage, it speaks of wisdom being begotten, coming forth from God. Problem is, the, the Greek term just couldn't mean that. There's a different term that means be getting. So it's not it's not that that can't be the solution. Others said that the beginning spoken of when wisdom speaks as a creature in verse 22 it must be a description of Jesus human nature. But that doesn't at all fit the context, so that couldn't be the right solution either. It turned out that the actual solution was really rather simple. It turns out that the Septuagint had badly translated the Hebrew of Proverbs 8.22, into Greek. You go back to the Hebrew, the original language in which this was written, and the term in Proverbs 8.22 does not mean created, but rather possessed. It says the Lord possessed wisdom, not the Lord created wisdom. And so it was finally cleared up by a better knowledge of Hebrew, a better knowledge of the original language, better scholarship. And most English translations following the Hebrew text uh, speak this way. In in Proverbs 8.22, wisdom says, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way. Wisdom was possessed by God from the beginning. And of course, once you read it that way, you start to see how it does connect with what we find in the New Testament, what we find in the Gospels, that language of the Lord possessing His wisdom in the beginning, that language of beginning, that's echoed in John chapter 1. We read it this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, God was never without His Word. The Lord was never without His wisdom. The Father was never without His Son. In fact, we could. Rephrase John 1 this way in light of Proverbs 8. In the beginning was the wisdom, and the wisdom was with God, and the wisdom was God. And what's interesting, in Proverbs 8, it moves on from this declaration that the Lord possessed his wisdom in the beginning to describe wisdom's role in creation, how everything was made through wisdom. Wisdom was God's agent in the work of creation. John 1 does the same thing. It goes on to talk about how this word, this logos, was God's agent in creation. Everything was made through the logos in John 1. Everything was made through wisdom in Proverbs 8. Verse 23 says wisdom is from everlasting. Wisdom is eternal. Verse 25, again sounding a lot like John 1, says wisdom was brought forth or begotten. Just as John 1, verses 14 and 18 speak of the Son as begotten of the Father. Verses 27 to 31 show us wisdom as the chief architect of God's work of creation. The design of creation reflects the eternal wisdom of the Son of God. Now, of course, this is, again, a a theme the New Testament picks up on. I already mentioned John chapter 1, which ascribes the work of creation to the Word, to the Son of God. But there are other passages that speak this way, too. Colossians 1, by Christ all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Hebrews 1, 2, God made the world through his Son. Proverbs 8 saying the same thing here. The world was made through the Lord's wisdom. What that means is all the intricacies of the universe, all the diversity and unity that we see around us, all the beauty and harmony of the world around us, how well the world works together in all its parts. It's all due to the wisdom of the Son. The son in his wisdom drew up the blueprint for the creation and then executed it. He was God's agent in the work of creation. And indeed, he continues to uphold and sustain the creation by his power and by his wisdom. Indeed, Proverbs 8 not only describes the role of wisdom in creation, it gives us insight into the relationship that God and His Son have, or that the Lord has to His wisdom. The relationship the Lord has had to His wisdom from all eternity. Look at Proverbs 8.30. Wisdom says, I was beside Him as a master craftsman, so that's wisdom working as a craftsman to build the creation. And I was daily his delight. Wisdom says the Lord delighted in me daily. We might think of each work of creation throughout the creation week each day. But it shows us something here of the eternal relationship between the Lord and his wisdom. Think of those places in the Gospels where the Father says to Jesus, you are my beloved Son in whom I delight or in whom I rejoice. At his baptism, this is what happens. When the dove descends upon him, this is what Epiphany Sunday is really all about. It's a manifestation and a revelation of who Jesus is and how does the Father identify his Son. He says, you are my beloved Son in whom I rejoice. This is the Trinity. Here in Proverbs 8, this is the Trinity being revealed. Traces of the Trinity found here. Obviously, it becomes more fully revealed to us in the New Testament scriptures. But we see here the delight that the Father has in his wisdom, in his Son. See, the Trinity is really something of a mutual admiration society. Rivers of love and joy stream out from one member of the Trinity to another. It's God delighting in God. God delighting in himself. You need to understand, our whole picture of God here, I think, can be transformed by what's here. We might have a tendency to think of God as sour and glum, and if not frustrated, at least disappointed. But this describes here a very different picture of who God is and how God is. God is infinitely happy in himself infinitely happy. God is the happiest being in the universe. The love and joy that the Father and the Son have in one another, that's right at the heart and center of everything. And so, when God calls you to himself, he's not calling you away from those things that would make you really happy. He's calling you towards ultimate happiness, ultimate joy. He's calling you to share in his own joy in himself. Uh, You see this continue really in the very next verse where we find that not only is the Lord rejoicing in his wisdom, but wisdom rejoices too. Wisdom rejoices before the Lord, before God the Father, and wisdom also rejoices in the creation. Verse 31 says, in the inhabited world. Wisdom rejoices in the inhabited world. Yes, that's a world inhabited with Plants and animals. And you can just think of the incredible variety and diversity of plant life and animal life we find in the world around us. Wisdom even uses animals to teach sometimes. You see that in the book of Proverbs too. Wisdom pointing to some creature in the the subhuman creation and using it as a teaching model. Wisdom's design is found there. You know, the animal kingdom really is amazing in its diversity. And we haven't even discovered it all yet. Yeah, in fact, uh, we discover new species every year. You, know, you can go home and Google new species discovered in 2014, and you will find some just amazing creatures that we are just now finding out about. Which, you know, so why did those creatures exist if we're only just now finding out about them? If it's only in 2014 that we're discovering these. Creatures. Well, they've existed for the last several thousand years simply so that wisdom might take pleasure and delight in them. Creation is wisdom's playground. And wisdom is infinitely happy in the things it has created. But the inhabited world here is especially a reference to the world of people. It speaks in the rest of the verse, of wisdom taking delight in the sons of men. See, wisdom does not view humans as parasites disrupting nature's perfect state. That's what some people would tell us today and how they would have us view humanity. No, wisdom delights in the sons of men because wisdom made us to be stewards, who are given dominion over the creation, to rule over the creation, to take care of the creation, to develop the creation, to transform it into something even better, to transform creation into culture, to transform creation into civilization. Wisdom's design is for humans to rule the creation in wisdom. Wisdom designed for human beings to sit on thrones ruling over the creation. Think about the Chronicles of Narnia. The sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve are to sit on the thrones at Carabelle, ruling over Narnia. That's wisdom's design for the human race, that sons of Adam and daughters of Eve might sit on thrones, ruling over the creation in wisdom and goodness. And so we are the special objects of wisdom's delight, the special objects of Christ's delight. We need to know this. We need to know this about ourselves. Whatever we want to say about sin and how the fall has disrupted the order of creation and brought in disharmony where wisdom had put harmony in the beginning, the fall does not undo wisdom's plan. The plan is still proceeding. And wisdom still delights in the sons of men. You need to understand, God doesn't just tolerate you. In fact, I would say, it's not just that God loves you. God likes you. You're wisdom's handiwork, wisdom's craftsmanship. God looks on you the way a great painter looks on his masterpiece. When Bach heard his music played, he took great delight in it. When wisdom looks upon you, wisdom takes great delight in you. God doesn't just tolerate you. He doesn't even just love you. He likes you. He rejoices in you. What do we see here? The father enjoys his wisdom. Wisdom enjoys the creation and especially wisdom enjoys his greatest creation, man. All of wisdom's creation is good. That's how Genesis one ends with God celebrating the goodness of his creation, declaring it very good. Now what does all this mean? How do we understand this? The father had his wisdom, his son, in whom he delights from all eternity. That means God did not need to create. He didn't need to create to shore up some deficiency in himself. God didn't need to create out of loneliness or some other need or weakness. No, he created out of the overflowing abundance of his love. Why did God create through his wisdom? He created for the joy of it. And creation is suffused with the love and joy of God in his wisdom. One way we reflect wisdom in our lives is by enjoying the creation, enjoying the good things this world provides. The great theologian, perhaps the greatest theologian ever to live on American soil, Jonathan Edwards, said every aspect of the creation reveals the love and joy of God. And then Edwards went through all the physical aspects of the world to catalog how these things reveal the love and joy of God. So, for example, he took gravity. Uh, Isaac Newton had just discovered the laws of gravity not too long before Edwards lived. Edwards said gravitational forces... These forces of attraction, how physical bodies are attracted to one another. That is a physical picture of the spiritual love that holds the universe together. Pointed to Colossians 1, that says all things were created through Christ and for Christ, and in him all things consist. That is, in his love and in his wisdom all things are held together. Now I'm not endorsing Edward's theory there, because modern physics would certainly explain gravitational forces differently than Newton did. But the point is, the universe is a place filled with the wisdom and love and joy of Christ. The design of the creation, the design of humans, reveal the wisdom of Christ. Living as we were designed to live going with the grain of our creation, living as as, as 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 wisdom made us to live, living wisely is living a Christ-like life. It's being conformed to the image of Christ. That's what we were made for. And that's why this passage ends as it does. Wisdom says, Whoever finds me finds life and obtains grace from the Lord, but he who rejects me wrongs his own soul all those who hate me love death. To reject Christ is to reject wisdom and it's to reject life. To have wisdom is to have life because it's to have Christ. If you reject Christ and decide to go your own way in arrogance, you know, you've seen the first half of this passage how wisdom hates arrogance. Wisdom hates pride. You wrong your own soul. You disfigure your own soul. You're vandalizing your own soul if you reject Christ and his way. Really, the end of this passage sounds a lot like 1 John 5. 1 John 5 says, He who does not have the Son does not have life. He who has the Son does have life. He who has wisdom has life because you have the Son who has life and wisdom in himself. Let me wrap this up. What is this chapter really about? What do we as Christians take away from a chapter like this? This chapter begins with wisdom calling aloud in the city streets and in the city square. It ends with wisdom threatening death against all who reject her. Throughout Proverbs, you have this contrast between two ways you can travel. You really have this contest between wisdom and folly. And each vie for the young man's attention and affection. Here in Proverbs 8, wisdom is stating her case. Why should wisdom be trusted and pursued? Why is wisdom so valuable? Why is wisdom worth more than rubies and any other kinds of riches? Because wisdom didn't just show up. Wisdom was there in the beginning when God created. Indeed, wisdom was involved in the creation. This is a wisdom older than the universe. You know, sometimes we hear today of people having a life coach, you know, hiring out a life coach to help them and provide guidance along the way. Or you hear about people seeking out mentors to teach them and and guide them in life. Or when people get serious about exercising they go get a a, a personal trainer or a student if if he's struggling in some subject might go hire out a tutor we're always looking for people who can help us now whenever you're going to give someone that kind of role in your life you're interested in their credentials you might even ask to see a resume so here in Proverbs 8 what do you have you have wisdoms resonate wisdom's credentials here wisdom is applying for the job of being your life coach and your mentor and your personal trainer and your tutor wisdom wants to be your counselor wisdom's applying for the job of running your life will you hire her well you want to know about wisdom's previous life experience previous work experience And wisdom comes and says, well, I was involved in the first and greatest work of all, the work of creation. Talk about impressive previous experience and impressive resume. You want to know wisdom's credentials? Wisdom says, look around you. Everything in the world bears my imprint. It's my craftsmanship. Creation is my project. I'm the one who makes everything in the world fall into place and work together. You want to know wisdom's skill set? Wisdom says, I know how everything was made, how it was designed to work. I understand the intricacies of human beings, the depths of the human soul. I understand the architecture of the universe because I drew up the blueprint. I know what can't be seen through a telescope or through a microscope. I understand it all. You want to know wisdom's likes and interests? Wisdom rejoices in the inhabited world. Wisdom takes a great interest in people and their families and their communities and their cultures. She's interested in work and in play in money and in politics. Wisdom knows how it's all supposed to function. What about wisdom's attitude? Wisdom's attitude is one of enthusiastic merriment. She brings joy to others and she rejoices. Now, wouldn't you like to have a mentor or a counselor or a life coach with that kind of resume, those kinds of credentials? Then listen when wisdom speaks. She knows what she's talking about. And of course, that's because wisdom is ultimately Christ himself. To seek wisdom is to seek wisdom. Christ To surrender your life to wisdom is to give your life over to Jesus himself. To listen to wisdom is to listen to Jesus. Proverbs 8 emphasizes this role of wisdom in creation. We've already seen how the New Testament picks up on that by showing us Christ's role in creation. But the New Testament then adds something else to this picture of wisdom's work in the world. Wisdom is not only the architect of creation. Wisdom is also the architect of redemption. We were created by the wisdom of Christ. We're also redeemed by the wisdom of Christ. The wisdom embodied in Christ, the wisdom seen especially in his cross. See, in the fullness of time, wisdom became human. Wisdom was made flesh. In Christ, wisdom became visible, and knowable, and touchable, and yes, even crucifiable. And when wisdom was crucified, the ultimate wisdom was revealed. The greatest wisdom of all, the highest wisdom, the deepest wisdom of all, was unfolded for us in the cross of Christ. Were the one who was full of all wisdom and full of love and full of joy emptied himself and poured himself out for us and for our salvation. We must come to see Jesus as a treasure chest of wisdom. We must see flowing out of Jesus a river of love and joy. We must see his beauty and his worth. Stop seeking happiness and wisdom other places. Seek wisdom and joy. The only place they can be found in Jesus himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the same wisdom that made the world has entered the world. The wisdom that framed the world, became a person and lived and suffered and died to show us the ultimate wisdom. Oh, Father, we know blessed are those who listen to wisdom, who listen to Christ. Blessed are those who seek him, for they shall find him, and in finding him, find wisdom and find life. Oh, Lord, help us to see that compared to Christ, nothing else is worth having, nothing else is worth knowing all the idols, all the other places we run for wisdom and happiness are broken cisterns that cannot hold water. But Christ himself is a river of life flowing with love and joy and wisdom. May we drink from him and have our thirst quenched forever. This we pray in his name. Amen.